Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for this very special episode. We are trying something a little bit different today on Means of Creation. We're just having a casual conversation between me and Nathan and Adam. And we'll also just kick it off by giving our takes on recent news, things that we've seen come up on social media recently and answer some past guest questions. And then we'll take live audience questions. So hopefully that sounds good to everyone. I like. I think this is a pretty common format. I think Ben Thompson and his co-host on his podcast basically do this for every single podcast episode, and I really like the vibe. And I think given that there's so much happening in the passion economy, it's fun to have some time to just digest the news, discuss it with each other, step back from having guests and peppering them with questions. So my first question is, Nathan, how's your week going? Yeah. My week is going good. It's fun to, I put the discord by the way, in the chat and it's fun to, it's fun to have a more casual one of these, but basically the thing that I'm very curious to talk about is we'll interview them in the future, hopefully, but Wes and Guggen's new cohort based courses startup, which is interesting because I think there's a lot of course platforms and, and it, I thought that was like a pretty well-served market, but maybe there's something new to be done there. I'm really excited about this one. I think there's been so many- You invested, right? I invested. Yeah. Yes, I invested. I'm an investor in the company, so I am biased here, but I think it's a really interesting- You invested compelling... because you're excited. So you're yeah, totally. skin in the game. Yes. I think online education has followed this really interesting arc over the last decade. And I think the promise of the internet being able to deliver a really high quality education to everyone in the world has been something that's been a bit of a North Star for every entrepreneur and VC in this category. And obviously we've seen numerous iterations of what online education can potentially look like. I think the biggest, like some of the biggest past paradigms in online education were, of course, MOOCs, the massive open online, massive open online. Massively open online courses, which is basically just putting a bunch of videos on the internet. There was really not, and like some text to accompany it maybe. Yes. Basically talking heads, just transposing what had happened offline in a lecture hall to the online world and putting the content out there and expecting people to complete it. And over time, people realize that these were not very engaging. It's not interactive. And so the completion rates end up being very low in the single digit range. And so even though you have so much content out there, very little of it was actually consumed and absorbed by the students. And then I think we also had a lot of marketplaces where they were open platforms where anyone who was an expert could create recorded course and offer it for sale online. So for instance, Creative Live, Skillshare, Udemy was actually one of these platforms that Goggin previously co-founded. And I think these were interesting because it basically taps into the core idea of the passion economy, which is that there's so many different pockets of expertise and knowledge and skill around the world. Much of it is trapped in people's heads. The value of it is not unlocked, both in terms of just sharing that knowledge as well as being able to monetize it. And so these platforms offered basically a two-sided marketplace for people to be able to discover content, share content that they were passionate about and monetize that. So the first was MOOCs, which are like free. And the second was like marketplaces where individual creators are making basically a MOOC, but you have to pay to get access to it. Is that, am I I picking up what you're putting down? Yeah. And I would say the second model is a little bit more creator led where you're engaged in a certain 
class partially because of who that person is and your affinity to them. Pinnacle well, are like university-ish. Well, had, they had, we're going to put a college course online vibes, whereas the sort of creator platforms like Skillshare, Udemy were a little bit more learn to code or something like that. Exactly. You were enrolling in them because of the topic, because of what the institution was, and then it transitioned to more of a person-centric model. And the pinnacle of this is probably masterclass, where you're taking a class from a celebrity, an expert that you really admire. You're enrolling in the class, not so much to learn tennis, but to learn tennis from Serena Williams. Mm. And I think that model is really interesting. It almost blends together entertainment and education. And it's such high production value. It's like a beautiful piece of videography that people just want to purchase and access. I think recently during COVID, there's been a ton of new education content that has been surfaced that is that is live in nature, this being, you know, one of them, where people are leveraging video and like video conferencing to be able to deliver knowledge in a live format. And that encourages more intimacy, more engagement with the audience. There can be audience participation, Q&A, recognition of students, et cetera. And I think a company that has done this model really well and has iterated on it is On Deck, the On Deck Fellowship. So it's a blend of live sessions with different experts. Plus, there's also a community aspect. So it resembles what we have going on with Means of Creation, where we have the live sessions, the community on Discord, plus on Twitter, plus a bit of asynchronous content in the form of our newsletter, all of the podcasts we publish afterwards. And I think that the learning has been that these cohort-based, this mix of async plus synchronous plus community, it creates for a really engaging experience yeah. um, where people feel like they're part of they're part of an experience together. There's a shared experience. People have that in common and it actually enhances the learning experience to be able to go through this content together with a group of students who's experiencing it at the same time. It is the model of a college or going to school in the offline world, but adapted to the online world. So do platforms for courses now like not do this? Cause I thought that there was already like, isn't like Tiago Forte's like Second, building second brain stuff, or Dave Perel's or passion stuff. Those are, they're already the cohort-based courses. What are, the, what are like the tech options if you wanted to create that kind of a course now? And what was lacking about them? Yeah. So my impression is that it is possible to create a cohort-based class right now, um, using all of the tools that exist out there. It's just hard to do it. So oh, you right, have to yeah. stitch together a bunch of different pieces. You have to use another platform for the community aspect or Slack or Circle or something like that. You host the video somewhere, then you do some live sessions on Zoom. It's it's like the pre-substack problem of creating yeah, totally. a newsletter. I was just thinking of that. I was just thinking of that because I remember when I first joined Substack, this is like in the very early days and I would describe it. People were like, can't you just do that with WordPress? And I was like, technically, but <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> and some people will do it, but it's not only is it a pain to put together, if that was all it was, and that would be like, fine, but whatever. But it's actually, it's a worse experience for users because the system is not designed for the thing you're trying to make the system do. And so it's more painful for you and it's more painful for your users, which is like the really bad thing. Precisely. 
So that is where Wes and Goggins' new company comes in. That's cool. So they're, they're building a platform to make it easier to create this cohort-based course with a mix of asynchronous content plus synchronous live classes from the instructor plus a community component of all of the students. So I'm really excited for it. There's a slate of really high-profile instructors that they've gotten signed on that I can't talk about yet, but mm. stay tuned. It's going to be launching early next year. Interesting. Adam, I'm curious if you have looked much into the course world. Yeah. One thing I think that's especially interesting about this one is that it's taking a segment, because I'm sure on Teachable or even some of the MOOCs, right, like people are having successful businesses outside of the cohort-based model. And I think what's interesting is that this company is taking a segment. And like you said, there's a couple of disparate tools to pull it together and building a whole platform for it. And that can often, by like giving creators the tools, it can often attract more creators and create a whole ecosystem. And I think the Substack analogy is like perfect where, again, it was possible before, but it's just like when there's like a kind of a cultural thing where a number of high profile creators and investors and like the whole community gets around something that's like new. And this is actually a thing like paid newsletters, just like easy to spin up, easy to get going is a thing. I think the same thing with cohort-based learning. Um, and another thing I think is interesting that's really exciting is that, yeah, I think some of the educational outcomes of previous ed tech stuff were, especially what I'm thinking about MOOCs in, in particular, is that they served a certain need, but it was very, a lot of the stuff was, was pretty shallow. It was like, like you said, take a couple of video courses or, or do some things like that. And certainly there were some outcomes that were really successful. But I think some of the cohort stuff, I was like poking around some studies earlier when I first saw the announcement, I think yesterday. And there's some, some studies out there that show that there's like better retention and better like educational outcomes for cohort-based things. So I think another thing that's very interesting about this company in particular, for, from my point of view, is that we're like slowly like iterating on, you know, how can we not just provide tools that consumers will pay for a creator in some sense, but also lead towards better knowledge retention or preparation for jobs or whatever the outcome may be. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think cohort-based is like another name for accountability. It's mm. how you deliver accountability. Yes. And I think this is why communities and community software, community platforms is having a moment as well is because that sense of like accountability, interest in a shared outcome, a sense of you're not just out on your own independently going through something, but you are part of a larger group of people who are interested in a certain thing or desiring a result in common with them. It actually creates a lot of incentives to continue going. So I think this is why creators love to have like digital fan clubs or there's like an emphasis now on Facebook in getting every new user to join a meaningful group, a meaningful community. That's like mm. something that Mark Zuckerberg has talked about a lot is not just like experiencing Facebook as an individual browsing through your newsfeed, but joining some of the groups on Facebook that become a core part of your Facebook experience that has shown to improve stickiness on the platform and make people a lot more engaged and retained. So I think the community, like humans are naturally very social and community functions as a source of accountability, delivers a sense of belonging. And yeah, it, I think in the education context helps a lot. Yeah, totally. It's so, to me, one of the things that's so interesting about all these things is like, there, there's something that Adam said that kind of resonated with me, which is part of it is like the technical innovation to make it possible to do the thing. But maybe the bigger part is just putting a flag in the ground and saying, this is a model that works and more people should be doing it. 
Yeah. Okay, cool. We can talk about all the benefits of cohort-based courses, whatever, but I guess one way to popularize it is just to do it yourself, like the Ben Thompson or the Tiago Forte or the David Perel or, or the On Deck who are already doing courses with the cohort-based model. But I think it doesn't seem to gain traction almost until there's some platform that is going to like really put in a lot of energy to making other people successful at the model. Because like Ben Thompson inspired people to do a similar thing, but is not putting energy into making other people directly successful. The Substack is like, building features, it's selling people on the idea, it's gathering data, it's building confidence, it's pitching people, it's investing in people like with an advance to help them leave their job or whatever. There's a lot of active things they're doing that it's, if you, if we want to talk about why paid newsletters are a thing now, it's like not a mystery. It's, it's because of actions that Substack is taking. And like, also it's because the model just works and that was independent of Substack and pre-exists Substack. And there's other platforms that are doing something similar. But I think that it's the actions that the platforms take to make it a thing that I think really tend to snowball. And it's so interesting because beforehand people were like, you know, how many writers will like really do this? And you can't look at the market for something like Substack and, or this new company that's doing cohort-based courses and say, oh, it's the people who are already exactly doing that thing. Because like, I think that the meme of you can do this thing and it's a good idea to do because it's a model that works is like maybe the more important part of the business yeah. than the software itself. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think some of the Substack founders have mentioned that Ben Thompson was someone they looked to when they were like thinking about the model. And I imagine that if you looked at Ben Thompson's revenue as a total percentage of total paid newsletters now, it's like minuscule, which is honestly pretty cool that it could be an inspiration and then just extend the, the whole ecosystem, which I think is also possible for this new company. Yeah. I think this is a really great transition point to talking about another topic that we have in here, which is how can platforms enable a lot more creators to be successful than just a tiny segment of them. Mm. So this is something that Greg Eisenberg had tweeted out, I think yesterday, but basically the earlier part of his tweet storm was the secret of the creator economy is that very few creators are actually making money. There's a lot of creators, but most of them are making next to nothing. And he drew in examples from Spotify and a few other platforms. I think Substack is probably actually quite similar where there's a small number of creators and writers who are earning a lot of money. And then the average earnings is probably relatively low. Same with OnlyFans. There's a few girls who are making millions of dollars a year or per month or per week. And then I've heard that the 50th percentile makes something on the order of $500 a month. And so his question that he posed was, how can we make the average creator more money? And I put forth this idea of universal creative income inspired by UBI, which is that basically creators get a stipend from the platform if they are creating great content consistently. I love that. Also, that's something we're doing slash want to do with creators that we work with. And I think it's going to be really hard for a platform to do because they have to spend money on content and cultivate talent and like like provide services that are going to make the talent more likely to pay it off on the back end. But the, I think a publisher can, where it's, if that's your kind, you are a publisher functionally at that point. If you're like paying people to create content, I think you are, but I think the way you structure it can be really different than traditional publishers where it's more like cover you while you're getting started. So you have the confidence that like you can pay your bills and like, we believe in you in the long run that it's going to pay back basically. And then there's like the profit share as it grows. That's more like a platform basically than the traditional mm -hmm. publisher. Yeah. yeah. 
I, yeah, I have two interesting kind of analogies, if you will. One thing it reminds me of is Acquired FM, which is a, a podcast about technology company IPOs and acquisitions. They had an episode on the NBA. And I think this is actually an interesting corollary where it's like in the NBA, for example, each team shares in the revenue with all the other teams so that it's much more kind of collaborative. And if the whole league wins, then everybody wins rather than I think some of the other leagues, it's more that if a single team wins, then they win and not as much the other league. And they've done some interesting things with their being very promotional of their players as well that other certainly media companies and, and things could learn about. But that's what that reminds me of is that it would center everybody around the platform rather, you know, and trying to grow that, the whole ecosystem where it's like, can you imagine all again, TikTok creators or, or teachable teachers being very incentivized to grow the whole platform, which it could actually be quite an incentive for the platform themselves to, to encourage something like this, rather than having some sort of conflict between them. And then the other thing it reminds me of is, I can't remember the name and I can look it up, but there was a startup that I saw that was basically doing, I can't remember what it's called, but basically it was like, if you were, I think they started with baseball players where they, they had a bunch of five or seven rookie baseball players sign something together and agree to share a percentage of their income together to reduce the risk between them. And they were extending into other places like with MBA students or or whatever, with the kind of recognition that, um, yeah, pooling. Thank you, Koi. Yeah. So so that they they recognize that there's some risk and uh, luck involved in, in the success of each person, but that they were willing to trade some of that for some of the, like basically insure in kind of insurance. So I think that's another interesting thing that would be maybe beneficial in, in some certain circles and stuff. There was a question in the chat about like, where did this idea come from? I think there's a few things that are reminiscent of this idea. One is the TikTok creator fund, which I mentioned in my tweet. And I was having a conversation with Hank Green about the TikTok creator fund. And we talked about how it's like a form of socialism. Like it's a very centralized economy thing to do. If you make content, you will get Y dollars. If you do X, you get Y. Versus on most other platforms that are not TikTok that don't have a creator fund, it's much more of a free for all. Like you you do X, you might not get anything. (laughs) Like you create all this great content earnings are not guaranteed at all. You have to go figure out how to monetize yourself. And I think that work and traditional employment itself is a form of a contract. If you do your job and you fulfill the requirements, then you know exactly what you're going to get in the form of a salary. You're not directly responsible for the value that's created by your inputs. You just, as long as you deliver the input you agreed to deliver, then you get the money and it's predictable. Exactly. And I've often talked about a lot of social platforms as unpaid internships for creators. Like they're doing a lot of work and creating a lot of the value, but they're not getting paid for it. And the platforms are earning revenue. Like there is, there's a direct connection between how many views you drive versus what advertising CPM you get. And so if you are a creator, like you are directly, there is probably like a formula you can back into with, I drove 40,000 views that is worth a certain dollar amount. It's just that most creators don't see any of that today on Instagram or Facebook or et cetera. And so the UCI idea was inspired by all of those different threads of thought. And maybe like, how can we shift into a world in which like in return for delivering something that's certain, you can get an amount of income that is also certain. I think most people like that is desirable to a lot of people in the world. It's for sure desirable as like a content creator, but as a platform, you can't offer a meaningful amount of money to all of your users. And a piece of content is worth nothing inherently. It's only worth what 
an audience gets from it. And so like, how do you, how do you align the incentives and how do you as yeah. a platform make sure? And it's interesting to think about, I had never really thought of it before as like, there are times and places for different levels of direct tie between results and, and revenue. And most of what companies do is actually create a cushion for workers to not have to be directly individually accountable for the results of their stuff. And that's yeah. why it's so hard to be an entrepreneur is because the market is very like unforgiving. It will leave you out in the cold or whatever. And so companies are almost a form of like insurance for workers against being an entrepreneur and bearing the risk of not, not getting enough people to pay for your stuff. And there, there's an interesting like sliding scale almost. So I'm curious like what systems can make it. There's on the one hand when you're totally responsible for your results you're driving. And there's the other hand where it's like universal basic income. What's like an interesting way to be in the middle for this that makes it like you have some padding, you have some reliability, right. you're a little bit shielded from the market, but you still are guided by the invisible hand of the market towards doing something that creates value. Totally. And I think like different jobs are, there's like a sliding scale of how bonus based there are. Like there's some career paths, which are like you get 70 plus percent of your compensation as a bonus at the end of the year, depending on what you delivered versus other jobs where it's like totally guaranteed and it's your, just your salary and there is no bonus component. I think creators, you could toy with those different levers to determine their total compensation. But that idea of providing everyone a cushion where they know if they do some minimum amount of work, they'll get some minimum amount of earnings. And then there could be like upside if they do more or are super engaging and their content is amazing. I think that could be really interesting. And to your question about like, how is this get how does this actually get structured? And there were lots of comments on the tweet about this as well. I think this is obviously the tricky part. The devil is totally in the details. Like people could probably try to game the system, ask all their friends to view it, watch it, like it, comment on it, whatever. I think that's why TikTok's creator fund is a black box and no one really knows what goes into their earnings because the platform probably has to tweak and decide for themselves what kind of behavior do we want to reward and right like they probably don't know coming out of the gate exactly what that is and have to tweak it over time it's funny how the black box breeds conspiracy thinking though it's tap the share button then click more then double tap and see if you can see the different color that the heart becomes or whatever like on the for you page there's so many elaborate things to like do something anything that will like make the algorithm reward the thing with for you page views but I would love, it would be interesting to talk about like practical ways that platforms really could do this. I don't know if either of y'all have any, or media companies could structure things differently, right? Because there's like a fuzzy line between, you're basically an entity that sits between people directly creating content and people consuming content, which either generates revenue from ad dollars or generates revenue from subscription or other types of payment dollars. So like media companies and platforms both like fit that description. I'm curious, are there any examples that come to mind that could be like implemented today by some company? The way I'm thinking about it, which doesn't really answer your question, but just highlights how, how tough it might be, is that um, there are things that are, again, more on the entrepreneurial path where it's if you, if the high risk and high reward kind of thing, where it's like about views or likes or subscribers or whatever, there's like that end of the spectrum, which is very much interacting with the market. And then there's like the other end, which is I think one one solution you could have is have some sort of a person moderating it, right? If you like, that's, I think what a lot of workers do is that you meet a certain quality bar in regards to your manager and they, and that kind of back and forth is, is like what's 
what you can produce or what you get paid for. But I wonder if there's a way to have that relationship somehow where it's not quite the risk of a pure open market kind of solution or algorithmic solution. That's not exactly a perfect market or anything, but it's not that, but it's, it's also like, can some sort of computer software detect like earnest effort and like some sort of quality that it's not a manager that has to be there because that's extremely expensive. Uh-huh. So that's what I would maybe be trying to tackle. I don't have any great solutions, but that's how I'd be framing it. I think YouTube's yeah. AdSense program is already a version of this, of UCI, where if you're like, I think if you're over a certain number of subscribers on YouTube, you are eligible to participate in AdSense and earn revenue on the platform. And you get, I forget the exact rev share that they have. I think it's something like 50-50, but I might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But you basically Mm -hmm. get a percentage of the advertising revenue for all of the ads that are played during your video, either like it's pre-roll or like mid-roll, et cetera. I think you could easily translate that to the Instagram world where there's ads that are sandwiched in between all of the stories and you could divvy up the ad revenue and share ad revenue back to creators based on how much engagement time was produced by their content. Yeah. Like it's the attribution is a little less clear because it's not directly tied to a specific video the same way it is on YouTube, but you could still proxy for that by time spent or something. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Koi, Koi said that basically he sold knives in high school, which is awesome. <laughs> I feel like kids got suspended for that, but maybe not literally in your high school, you sold the knives. Maybe while you're a high school student, you're a knife salesman. This um, is the thing. This is, there's like a company called Cutco, I think that lets oh, really? young people sell knives. Sell knives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, basically you get paid like a small amount for the inputs and then you get paid a bigger amount for the results, which is like actually closing a sale. So it's nice where you're like de-risking the effort to some extent for someone, but like really the upside comes when you get results. And so you'll probably stop doing it if you're not getting results. And that's probably best for you and for Cutco. Interesting. Also, I loved Soren's thing in the Q&A, which is like maybe a good proxy for value is retention, which Mm. I think makes total sense and has a lot of implications for, I think, us actually. What if we compensate based on retention more so than like just engagement metrics or whatever? Because I feel like that really is the best proxy. You can make something maybe go viral, but like, People aren't going to keep coming back to the same creator unless they really genuinely like it. And so it feels like that's a really heavy signal that you could even detect pretty early on, like off of a small base. If there's like pretty good retention, that probably really says something. Yeah. I think it depends on how the monetization model of the platform as a whole works. If the platform's monetization is based on number of views and like, i.e. it's advertising based, then you do want to reward super viral content that gets shared and viewed a bunch. But if it's based on subscription revenue or fan donations, fan tipping, things like that, then you probably do want to compensate for retention. Yeah, no, that makes sense. One other thing that just occurred to me is I think actually the most sophisticated existing model for this may be a really old school one, which is just when you publish a book, you write a little bit of the book and enough for the, to convince a publisher that it's going to be a good book. And then they pay you a lump sum, which is usually doled out in one or two parts. Like you get a little bit when you sign, you get a little bit more when you turn in the book and you get a little bit more when the book is actually like live and ready for people to buy. But that's an advance against your royalties. And then as people are buying the book, once you've earned out your advance because your royalties have surpassed the amount that was given to you by the publisher, then it's all gravy and upside from there. 
And so it's the, but you don't have to return it if you don't earn out your advance. So the, the money is guaranteed to be yours. And so it makes sense because it's like a book is a discrete project that they would bid a certain amount of money for you to do the work for the book. And then you share in the upside on the back end. It's really smart. And a lot of what we're doing with our deal with creators is to try and figure out a book publisher like model, but adapted to the case of recurring revenue. That's really interesting. That reminds me of the origin story of Patreon too. Oh, really? Which is that, yeah, the origin story was that Jack, Jack Conti, who's the CEO of Patreon, he's also a musician. He plays in this band called Pomplamoose, and he basically maxed out all of his credit cards to create this one incredible YouTube video. It actually is really amazing. He like created a robot there's like moving parts and he spent like tens of thousands of dollars on this music video. So he bore, he bore the risk up front of creating this video. And then after it went live, he looked at the views, which were in the millions, and then looked at his AdSense revenue, which was like $200, and realized that there was a total disconnect between how much value he was giving to his fans versus how much he received as a creator. So I like that idea of giving advances, not forcing the creator to bear the entire risk of creating a great piece of content but almost, yeah, funding them up front as like a mini company to go and do something that you know is going to pay off. Yeah. Hmm. I Koi's comment here is really interesting too. He says, TikTok creator fund pays out per engagement, per output, per day. So if you have a viral video that grows after the day you post it, you don't get paid for it. I didn't Whoa. know that. I, I was trying to find information about how the the creator fund works and how they pay out. And I couldn't find any information other than the super high level stuff. So if this is true, I'd be curious on your source, if you have a special source for this, but that is really interesting. And it raises all sorts of questions of if the platform is the one paying you and they also decide how viral your video goes, isn't that kind of a conflict of interest? It's reminiscent of the anti- trust stuff that's going on with Amazon and how they both are a marketplace and they create their own products that they can decide how it ranks in the search results. Yeah. I also really liked Gary Tan's response to this question of how can we make the average creator more money? He basically, he mentioned that like in a world in which distribution is driven by algorithms, like a newsfeed or recommended videos on YouTube, the way that creators are hacking distribution is through collaborations, collaborating on content together. And that's a way that you can get a lot of views by piggybacking off of someone who does have distribution without having to rely on the al algorithm, slowly showing you to more people over time. And so his suggestion was like guilds or collaboration groups between creators and systematizing that in some way, which I think is akin to what you're doing with the everything bundle. Yeah, definitely. Well, and when you just said that, it made me think, I wonder if we could do, let's say this show becomes really successful and you've got a bunch of people that want to create similar type stuff and you would have the best judgment. So what if we, it's like with the music label, there's like imprints, for instance, I, I don't know exactly who decided to sign Drake at Universal Music, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't some like C-suite executive at Universal Music. It was probably like Lil Wayne who had cash money records and found artists to sign like Drake, Nicki Minaj. And then once you become a certain level of successful, then you basically, the label is okay, cool. Like now you've got cash to invest basically in the next generation. And it feels like there needs to be a similar structure for lots of different forms of whether it's courses or other types of stuff, basically. Yeah. yeah. And our reps for content creators. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think you're hitting on the point that like creators are often the, 
a very good sense of taste. And so they would be uh, very well positioned to choose the next one that would become big. So, yeah. And it, and it would also give them a natural incentive to do the like collaboration and cross promotion stuff where you're like, cause it's like, it, Ben Thompson's not bringing up the next generation, Ben Thompson. He's just continuing to be Ben Thompson. And it's cool if he doesn't have any interest in that, but I think he would be able to, it would be nice if people like that had some like model that was like, they could identify like people who they think are doing good work. That's like in their same genre and lift them up a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think that would be an efficient structure for everyone involved because Ben Thompson could benefit from having a share in the success of those people would obviously benefit from Ben Thompson's audience and, and mentorship and I guess imprimatur, the seal of approval. And so it seems like everyone wins. Why, do, why doesn't that happen more often? I feel like that does happen. That is what happens inside of a media organization today. That's true. Like the media organization hires someone who's fresh out of college, gives them a platform, gives them credibility, gives them a built-in audience and builds them up and takes a bet on them as an institution. It doesn't really yeah. happen in the independent world though. You're right. I guess like David Dobrik recruits people for his squad. And yeah, that's, that's true. The vlog squad is like a rotating cast of characters. Yeah, true. it's like Ayla swapping promos on OnlyFans. Yeah, the fellowship program. On Deck does this to some extent too. Although I think economically, the incentives are wrong. Basically, like On Deck is a thing you're purchasing. So their goal is to provide value so that you feel like it was worth your money. But whether you go on to do the thing successfully or not, like on deck doesn't really have skin in the game. I think it would, it should be structured more like an investment where you're actually putting at stake some money rather than getting some money from the creator that you're working with. If you're on deck or if you're like the, the label or whatever. So you're actually putting capital at risk and reputation at risk. And then the other person you have a big incentive to make it work for them and you're going to be much more selective. Yeah. Rather than just getting people to pay you for like knowledge and community and stuff. On deck does have a fund. So they invest in oh, good. that get created out of it. Right. Yeah. But that's like different from the on deck fellowship, right? No, it's coupled. Yeah. They're so when there. I was in like the first cohort of on deck and it wasn't, uh, this wasn't a thing yet, yeah, but I was it, basically it, it like, what you should around, do. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got set up around on deck four-ish, I want to say. Oh, interesting. Because my idea for them in the cohort was I was like, there's so many people here who like still have jobs because they don't want to just burn through their savings. And especially like the first cohort was like in person and San Francisco is like ridiculously expensive. So you burn through the savings real fast. And I was like, we should do is create basically like a convertible note where you pay me like a guaranteed amount every month for six months. And it converts into, I pay it back interest-free from my salary if I go get a job at the end of that. And it converts into like equity in the company if I incorporate with a new startup. Yeah. Is that what they're doing or is it? But yeah, that, I think that is one of the models that they're pursuing. Yeah. And That's they cool. have a, there's a fund as well. There's a runway fund. Like a, more of a normal, like just a, they'll do safes in startups yep. that are already yep. incorporated kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was like pre-entity is like the new frontier of fundraising basically. Yeah, like how do you fund a person before they even start something? It's like the idea of pre-subscribe. I'm um, curious your take. Do oh. people want to come up too? Raise your hand if you want to come up and join us. Laura, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Good, okay. good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for the talk. I, there's so many things that are uh, lined up with what I'm 
working on here that I, it's, it's fun to, always to be joining you guys. So I had research at Marco Polo. So I'm working on Marco Polo, but we're also making a new product that's basically private Patreon for coaches. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Coaches can deliver coaching through this platform, own the whole system. And it's, it, yeah, it's super interesting because there's so many similarities and maybe it will end up being that we'll also work with creators as well. We do have a few kind of podcast people and influencer type people who are, who are testing it, but, um, is Marco Polo the video messaging? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's basically asynchronous video delivery of coaching. Interesting. Working on that, working on coaching is a very time consuming thing. So for both sides, if you can make it asynchronous, it's yeah. It frees up a lot of time to be able to create this type of content. Yeah. And, and it's, so this is more like informal and, but the business model, Marco Polo has taken a stand about like ad-based business models. We are doing this in a way that's like totally algorithm free and it's the creator really owns their own space and can charge, they get to set the pricing and figure out kind of their own marketing, et cetera. And I'll be interested to see as it grows, like how much will be able to do to bring them an audience versus them you mm. know, having to bring their own audience. Because I think this is where the crux of things are. are. Like, how do I, as somebody who's interested in, in doing this kind of work, grow my audience? Do I need to rely on things like social media, which aren't really ideal for that word of mouth? Can and, and this is where I wanted to mention the affiliate model that I put in there, because I think there's something about having people who are already successful take responsibility in a certain way for curating other people who might be successful and then themselves benefiting from that. That is pretty yeah. interesting in all of these platforms. Yeah. yeah I, totally. I, I do think that affiliate and referrals has been a really successful channel for creator acquisition for a lot of the bigger creator monetization platforms. Like OnlyFans had this referral program where I think you got 5% of that, the person that you referred onto OnlyFans earnings for Mm -hmm. their entire lifetime. They recently changed that to be just for the first year, I believe. But for a while, a lot of people were earning a lot just from referring people to OnlyFans. Yeah. And I mean, and in the coaching space, because the price points are way higher, it's very interesting for these coaches, because if they can figure out how to coach other people, how to coach, the money can be significant pretty early. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm curious. One one thing that I'm curious about, just based on the first part of this conversation, we were talking about like ways to de-risk it for people who are just getting started. Do a lot of coaches struggle to make it work where they're in this uh, spot where they're not making enough money to focus on it and they're not focusing enough on it to make money? That's like the key thing that every creator has to overcome somehow. And I'm curious if that how that applies in coaching. Yeah, I think that it was interesting because when you talked to Joe from Stir, I was like, oh, this is interesting because of course for an a product like ours that's early on, we're way more successful with people who know how to do everything already. We don't want to have to teach them how to be uh, a successful coach as well as how to use a new product. That said, I think this is an industry that's just getting started. The, being able to share your expertise and your passion and your perspective is something that 
is only going to grow and grow as far as what people want to do and think they can do and find a business model to do. I expect, it's surprising to me how there's a lot of coaches who are making money teaching other people how to do this, but there's not really, uh, as far as I know, a stir is a cool example of here's the kinds of things that could go into this, but how do you actually get clients to pay you is something that I think that's where I think there's a real business opportunity right now. Like how do you match people with something that they want to do? Like, how do I get a class from somebody who really knows how to teach me how to, I don't know, meditate or do branding or whatever it is, who I can count on as good and et cetera. Like that, the, there's not like a real marketplace for that. Yeah. It's so interesting to me how content discovery is. I don't know if there's a single place that's like really great. I guess Reddit, it seems like curation is this thing that theoretically should be able to happen more. Cause it's like, oh, cool. Like I just learned to trust someone or some place to provide good sort of discovery. And then I go there, but it's, it always ends up being so narrow. It's okay. There's good content discovery within TikTok for a very specific kind of thing or whatever, or there's good content discovery on in a bookstore. How many people are buying random books in bookstores these days that just look cool? Some, but it's, I don't know. It's so hard to do. Cause it's like, uh, It feels like content discovery really happens just in other content rather than in a marketplace for content, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that it's not just content, but it's also any kind of service that is more narrow than the kinds of things that you'd go to a brick and mortar store for. Yeah. But let me give other people space. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for being up here. I'm going to cold call on people. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, how's it going? Hey, Nathan. Hey, Lee. Hey, Adam. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining. Yeah, I think that there's kind of an interesting trend with like social media being like super frictionless and that just destroying the quality of signals. Oh, this has 10,000 likes, but is it really worth my time? Whereas you're starting to see platforms like Substack, if you have a thousand subscribers for a paid newsletter, that to me says, oh, there are a lot of people out there who think this is worth $5. So I will engage in it as well. And I think, yeah, like paywall as friction is like the first of like many forms of friction we will start to see. All right. Let's get them up here. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, Yeah. how's it going? Hi, hello from Canada. It's something we're obsessed with, like with our work in our platform. And I think to your point, it also matters the, I guess you could say the fidelity of the content. So obviously if it is a string of tweets, it's hard to judge how people are paying attention to something versus if it's a long form article or even medium form, or there's mixed media in the stream, it makes it easier to differentiate patterns of attention. And that already gives you a better sense of like how, what is a view? What is contained within a view? It's almost like views within views. And then you can start optimizing for that and making interesting ratios. But I also think like this idea of proof of work as it relates to engagement. So can you just comment and is a comment that just happens flippantly the same as a comment which you pick up a certain number of words even. There's very basic things you could do or even connecting, did somebody actually read it before they commented? And I just think right now because of the advertising foundation we've all adopted, we tend to not even consider these options. Yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'd be curious to see how platforms with more friction kind of scale because humans psychologically love to just have super simple heuristics to base their uh, judgments off of. And so uh, I'm interested, do you think that like systems with more friction have the potential to scale? Are people willing to engage with things just because they think they can get a higher signal from that friction? I really, I think Alex Danko talked about it recently, and I know a few others have this idea of friction actually being part of gamification. And when you're playing a game, the, there's always, it's a bit of friction, but just enough to keep you in a flow state, basically. And I think friction, when done well, especially when we talk about, I think it is a Darcy Kulikin was one of the people who said, like, the future of successful communities is going to touch on this kind of gamified engagement, or it feels like a game. And so I think friction can be part of making a marketplace or a community feel the game if you do it right. Friction doesn't have to actually end up feeling like friction. It can feel delightful if you're always catching up and always just a step behind. I think there's something to definitely to be said for scarcity also as a form of friction. Like when there's so many things in front of you that you can choose from, it just, this is like not an original idea at all, but it's tough. And I, one of my favorite apps that I've downloaded recently is the Atlantic. The Atlantic has really good content, but the home screen of their app you scroll and there's a bottom. You can only scroll so far. It's here's what we've got for you. And it's presented in a really nice way because it's like a magazine. It's not like algorithmically assembled. It's, it's human assembled. And it's like this interesting little daily, it's almost like an email where it's like curating the stuff that they have, but it's in an app and it just feels a lot nicer. And then in their app, you can go in and find other articles and other sections or whatever. But I find myself coming back to that screen a lot where I'm like not using a lot of other news apps for whatever reason. And with that one, that one I keep coming back to because it just feels like there's a bottom to it and I can make it a ritual where I can finish and I can celebrate. If I could just add one more thing, I did want to ask what you think about around metrics and value of engagement, the idea of giving people more power over the algorithm, because right now it feels like the weight is almost entirely on the platforms to define the algorithm. And it's kind of, you don't really know there's like a black box, you do what you will and it happens versus more explicitly saying, look, we're going to let you make deliberate decisions about what you see more clearly of like 80% and we'll just tell you like 20% is going to be the algorithm working, our algorithm working for you. And I feel like right now people make are, are so conditioned that they subscribe to things, but then they, you say, I want this to appear first, but you don't know what's going to appear first and it gradually just becomes totally out of your control. Yeah. And I feel like that's an indicator as well because if people <laughs> were in more in control and they were, had more deliberate and their decision of what they're going to see, that could count a lot as well in terms of how people should be compensated. Whereas now I feel like people don't really feel like they have absolute control. Totally. I think that Twitter should actually just have a version of the app where it's like a fire hose and you can build your own algorithm. And there's a marketplace where you could use other people's algorithms. And there's not one best algorithm. I may want to switch between different algorithms, like depending on my mood or depending on what I'm interested in. Show me controversial stuff. Show me people that are getting ratioed. Show me just things that are like the most popular things across all of Twitter today or like across all of Twitter the past month or something. Like there's like different ways of filtering and sorting tweets. And that's interesting that I, I feel like Twitter is actually an example of a platform that I would say there's actually relatively high degree of user control over yeah. what there's an explicit follow. And you, when you first start on Twitter, you have to follow people. Otherwise your whole feed is empty. And so that explicit follower model to fill up your feed, it introduces quite a bit of friction. And if I think of like the social landscape, I feel like the platforms that have been 
the most successful in terms of growth and high amount of usage per day, it's the ones that have reduced friction the most. Yes, I think that's a really good point. I also think that there's a certain type of user that would really love it. <laughs> and I think you're right that you basically want to have out of the box, really good experience. But I think assuming the out of the box experience is really good, it doesn't necessarily harm you to give people other options mm -hmm. too, if they want to go out of their way to find it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think what I grapple with is like, what is great for business success? Like what is really great for these platforms to grow and become huge and become valuable is at odds with what is good for users, mental health and sanity and right. content quality diet. Like, I think those two things are in opposition. This is the issue with filter bubbles and subscription content leading to more fragmentation and filter bubbles too. I think like, even though subscription content is really great for helping people to build businesses and monetize and it improves the quality of content that you read, like it leads to a world in which everyone is just siloed off yeah. and uh, like their views are affirmed and they only pay for what they agree with. The societal cost of a thousand true fans by Sam Lesson. <laughs> yeah, that'll be a fun one to talk about. If, if y'all don't know what I'm talking about, there is Sam Lesson wrote an interesting column in the information where he has his modest proposals column and it's very good about this topic, right? Yeah. Yeah. He talks about basically the societal cost of a thousand true fans. A, a thousand true fans was this idea that Kevin Kelly wrote about a decade ago. And it specifically is Kevin Kelly's original blog post is about creator monetization and how creators can make a living on the internet by not being mega famous, but by just having a thousand true fans who pay them like $10 a month. And through that, like you could get an income that can sustain you without being mega famous. The issue Sam points out in his recent article is that is that this creates increasing fragmentation and tiny micro niche communities. And we don't have a common basis of conversation or like shared affinity for each other anymore as a society. So the idea I'm obsessed with when you talk about the conflict of interest between the business model and then people's mental health, the way I've been thinking about it a lot is that we were we had an internet that was shaped by thinking of attention for the third party benefits. So you invest your attention, the internet is a vacuum, it sucks it away for the benefit of a third party. And then we've gradually transitioned to second party where it's somebody justifying your attention and trying to get you to pay for it or take an action to subscribe. And what I'm really interested in, because again, you as a user doesn't get you don't get a really tangible feedback, it's still a vacuum. And I'm interested in the first party benefit where as we talk about knowledge and the importance of expertise your attention being valued as learning. So all this attention you invest being validated, recognized and being used for you as a reader to prove what you're competent on. And then it becomes a first party benefit. And I find it interesting too, because when we talk about the, the big platforms monetizing in the way that they have, they don't actually need to, I don't think. Like you don't have to make your money that way. One thing I find interesting is that Digital advertising market is about 330 billion. But then if you look at the combined online learning and development markets, they're almost 650 billion. So if you were to treat attention and engagement directly as first party benefit in the context of learning and your competence, then maybe people could make even more money. Uh, so yeah, just something I, I've been thinking about a lot that I'd share. Definitely. 
Cool. So it's 12.07. We've gone on the Pacific coast. We've gone, we've gone longer than we normally do. This has been a lot of fun. I could talk about these topics all day. This was really fun, guys. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you guys back here next week. Thank you so much for joining. Bye.